We, we started talking last week uh, about Isaiah 66, and today we take the last chunk of Isaiah, and we've been there for, uh, for just a few months, like 12 of them, and, um, but we're finishing Isaiah, and as we talked about last week, he's really coming back to some familiar themes as he summarizes some themes of what is true worship and what isn't true worship. And last week we even talked about expanding our mind to say worship is not just the songs we sang this morning. Worship is far more than that. Worship is what we're about to do right now, too, opening God's Word and studying God's Word. Worship is being a family of God and, and greeting each other and welcoming, welcoming them to the glory of God. All these things are worship. One church bulletin put this in their church bulletin and, and catch this. Too many Christians worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. Let me read that again. Because it's like, well, those all those words. Too many Christians worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. And I read that, and quite frankly, I'm like, yeah, that's me sometimes too. Sometimes I, 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 I can get caught up into work and getting everything done and getting my task list done. And, you know, I'm one of those types that will add things to the task list, even if I just did it so I can check it off. And that just, it just feels really good. And so we can worship our work and career and moving ahead. We're, work at our play. And right now we're seeing such an explosion of entertainment and play and, and do this for your enjoyment and do that. And so we, we really work to be able to play. And, and I'm not saying play and recreation is wrong. But when it becomes an idol or when it becomes the most important thing in our life, then it's a problem. But finally, and play at their worship. And that's what I want to focus on this morning do we play at our worship? And, and what they mean by that and what I mean by that is do we take it lightly or do we take it seriously that we come to worship God Almighty before His throne while we sing and pray and study His Word? Just throw some, some adjectives in there. Uh, do we take this seriously to understand that God has designed worship for us to come and bow before Him and it's integral to our walk with God. It's integral to our faith. Or is Sunday morning just sort of a throwaway morning that, yeah, I'm supposed to do it. I'm supposed to come because, hey, God, God said, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But is it just duty or is it something more that God intends? And so as we come to Isaiah 66, we are hearing these same themes again. And, and I know the struggle with, by the end of a, a book this long, is, okay, you've said that. You've probably said that three times and you're saying it again. I could have been doing something else this morning. And we do that, right? We, we don't like to hear the same thing. We, with my kids, and I've told this story before, we, we taught our kids sign language when they were young before they could speak. And, and one of the things we taught them was at the end of the meal, they could do all done. And for those of you that know sign language, it's probably all wrong, but that's, that's what we did. All done. And I, I can remember one time, one of my children was needing some discipline. And, and so I was talking to them. <laughs> See? I'm practicing for next week when one of mine is in here. Um, and I, I was talking to them and trying to explain why this is right and wrong and trying to explain the, the, the spiritual implications of this. And about two sentences in, they went, no, you're not all done. Don't you dare say that to me or, or sign that to me or whatever. No, because, because I'm like, no, there, there's more to say. Why am I repeating it? Because you haven't gotten it yet. 
And when we see repeated things in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is saying, this is important, and this is a struggle to get, and so I'm going to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it until we get it. And so we come to the end of Isaiah, and we do see these familiar themes. But he's coming back to really saying it's all about worship. It's all about worshiping God or worshiping false gods. True worship from the heart or a false worship that is just doing some external things hoping to be religious. And God hates that. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66. It's the last chapter of Isaiah. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one underneath a chair on those racks right around you. Welcome to open that up and follow along. Take that home if you don't have a Bible. Um, We'd love for you to have one. But Isaiah chapter 66. And last week we got through the first four verses. And I'll just summarize those. Then we'll take the rest of the, the chapter this week. We saw in verses 1 and 2, we asked the question, what is our Creator God looking for? What pleases Him? And the answer was humble submission. And and we talked through that He's looking for a humble heart, a contrite heart, being contrite in spirit, and people that will tremble at His Word, that will anticipate and anxiously work to understand God's Word, a painstaking sensitivity and awe to the Word of God. And again, these weren't new concepts back in Isaiah 57 and earlier in the book. But in Isaiah 57, we read, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high holy place, setting himself as creator, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And so we know that God is looking for humility in worship. A true spirit of worship. One that comes in submission to Him. And the next question we, we started to ask last week that I want to continue this week is in verses 3 through 6, what does God despise? So we know what God likes, what He's looking for. So what does God despise? And the blanks of, of point number two, there are empty worship and surface religion. Empty worship and surface religion. So I want to start reading at verse 3 and and hit a couple of the things we we, um, hit last week and then go on. But verse 3 says, He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. And understand, slaughtering an ox was part of their sacrificial system. This was an external of worship. Killing a man was murder. It was wrong. And so he's saying, you you know, on, on, on the Sabbath for them, you go slaughter an ox. Or on the holy days, you go slaughter an ox. You look like worshipers. And then you go kill a man or you have hatred or your your life doesn't match. He goes on. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck, who doesn't even care about God's creation. He who presents a grain offering, again, the external thing that, that they were supposed to do, like one who offers pig's blood, a prohibited animal, a disgrace. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. And he he describes a people here who have all the right things on all the right days externally, but inwardly and in the week and in their lives, it doesn't match. And he says at the end of three, these have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. They've chosen to pursue this disgusting behavior, this behavior that God condemns and rejects, this empty ritualism. And it's a reminder to us that God wants 
truth in worship. He wants a heart that worships. Not just some external obedience, but a heart that matches that. One author wrote, Empty ritualism that does not symbolize a genuinely repentant and obedient heart is worse than useless. Let me read that again. Empty ritualism that does not symbolize a genuinely repentant and obedient heart is worse than useless. And we see this throughout Scripture. And what, he, what, what the idea is, is that if we just come and do all the right things on Sunday, and then we, we live like the world and we live for ourselves the rest of the week, and we think that makes us spiritual, it's useless. It's worse than useless. useless. In fact, it offends our Almighty God. Again, like we said last week, I'm not saying that these things are, are bad. It is good to come and be part of the family of God. It's good to come and worship. It's good to open His Word and study. But if we're doing it for a show, it's worse than useless. God wants a people truly in relationship with Him. And He goes on in 4 to, to talk about his, his opinion of it all. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. Remember in Isaiah 65, we talked about God. He's not this mean, vengeful God. He's calling people to Himself. He wants all to be saved. And He said, when I called, you didn't answer. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. One of the themes, other themes of this last chapter is choosing. Choosing between true worship and false worship. What God delights in and what God hates. And it's going to come down to a choice at the end of the chapter, as we'll see. But these people that God is is despising, it's because they've walked away, because they've chosen not to listen. They've chosen to rebel. To say, we're done with you, God. We will not do what you want us to do. God is saying, oh, my people, I gave you my commands for your good for your thriving, if you would just follow me. You know, a couple of things and in, in throughout this section of what does God despise, how can we make sure we're not worshiping in a way that God despises? One of the things that I think of when, in these two is we need to know why we do what we do in worship. We need to know why we do what we do in worship. And, and where I think of that is in verse 3 where he's talking about all these externals and, and they're just doing what they've been told. Slaughter an ox. Make this sacrifice. Make this sacrifice. And they've lost the heart of what they do underneath of why God commanded those things. We can do the same thing in worship, right? And we joked about this in one of our community groups this week that often on Sunday, sorry Joshua, often on Sunday we, we have the announcements, stand up for three songs, a prayer, sit down for three songs, and it can become very ritualistic. That's why Joshua and I try to mix it up sometimes and, you know, just one song and people are like, what? No, th- th- we want to think of what we're doing. How many times can we go through a worship service, the song portion of the worship service, and get to the end and not remember any words we sang? Right? Me, I, I do that sometimes. Sometimes I zone out or sometimes on some of my favorite songs. I sing the song and, and at the end I'm like, okay, what did I love about that song? One of my favorites. No, we, we need to engage our minds in worship. This is not an empty exercise coming together. Tell, tell me, just interact with me a little bit. What were some of the things we sang about this morning? Humility. Yeah, 
And, and, and that's, that's from verses 1 and 2 that God desires a humble heart. The greatness of God. How great is our God? And Joshua took that from, from verse 1 about creator God and, and the, the grand themes of Isaiah. What else do we sing about? What we believe, absolutely. And that we believe because He lives, we have strength and we have an ability to follow Him. And I I know we didn't tell you there was a pop quiz at the beginning of, of the song portion today. But do you see my point? We need to engage our brains and know why we do what we do. It's why we explain each week why we do worship or why we do offering in the middle of worship because it's an act of worship. It's, it's not about getting as much money as we can. It, it's, it's a God-ordained act to say, God, I appreciate what you've done and I give you back something. And so, man, it fits in worship. Now, why do we study the Word of God? We study it because we're to be a people that trembles at His Word and come under the authority of it. So know why we do what we do in worship. If there's something we do that you're like, I don't know why you do that. Ask us. Ask me. Because we try to be intentional about that. We try to understand. Now, I'm sure there's stuff that we do that we've just always done since I started coming here. And, and I need to think about that. Why do we do that? That will help us get past an empty ritualism to truly engaging our hearts in worship. The, the second thing, so, so know why we do what we do in worship the second thing out of these verses that I think they challenge with us practically is to make sure our lives match our worship. To make sure our lives match our worship. We humbly bow to God and then do we do what He wants or do we do what we want? And so that, that's right out of verse 3, this idea of, of life on worship day being different from life outside of worship. Now, all of us have inconsistencies and, and God is by degree by degree sanctifying us and revealing those and exposing those. But think about your week. Does it match the, the image that we put on on Sunday morning? Could people tell on Wednesday that I'm a worshiper and follower of Jesus? Could they tell on Thursday or just Sundays? And we see from these passages that God despises an inconsistent life that worships him, worships him one day and lives like the devil the next. We need to make sure our lives match our worship. Verses 5 and 6 going on in this section of what God despises and, and, and what He looks for. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at His word. And so He's speaking to true followers here that are in awe and anticipation, tremble under his, under his word, looking for it to affect them. And this is what he says to them. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. Again, the contrast throughout this chapter, of true worship and false worship. And he's saying to the people that come under the word of God, there's going to be those that don't and they're going to ridicule you. They're going to mock you. And in fact, their mocking sounds so religious, doesn't it? Oh, let's glorify God. You know, you know, show me your joy. Show me your joy. Now, we should all have joy. But this is written to a people that are just coming out of exile, that have been through the judgment of God, whose life is hard. And, and the implication here isn't a restful peace in God like we define joy, 
but one of show me your prosperity. Show me how well you're doing. If you're doing well, you must be spiritual. And God is going to, to explicitly tell them, actually, your joy is still coming. This isn't all there is. Your joy is still coming. And so there's this critical spirit and this, this persecution and ridicule of those who actually follow God's word. I'm sure you can all think of times where you are taking a stand for God's word and people stand against you. And just for our college students that are here, just on your college campuses, start to share some truth of God's word. And just see what happens. And I know most of you are doing that and you're in on the front lines. I applaud you for that because that is hard. And quite frankly, that's different from when most of us were in college. And you're on the front lines. But you, you feel this ridicule. And that's from the world. And what, what God is saying is, you're even going to have people that think they're spiritual ridiculing you. And God answers that in verse 6. The sound of an uproar from the city. A sound from the temple. The sound of Yahweh or the Lord rendering recompense to His enemies. And God is saying, don't worry about false accusations. I've got this. I'll take care of it. I will judge. I will discipline. And there's all kinds of thoughts about what this might be. The, the city, the, the, the uproar from the city might actually be referring to the fall of Jerusalem when Israel went into captivity and saying, see, that was part of the judgment. We don't know, but the idea is that God will take care of His true followers and He will judge those that don't. couple of other things out of this to combat a false worship we, we, we mentioned know why we do what we do in worship we mentioned make sure our lives match our worship third one that i would give is be careful not to be critical of others in worship and to be a spiritual know-it-all that's what the people were in verse five and we can we can so easily get that way especially if there's something in, in worship that isn't to our preference and our taste and we can be critical and Look down on others. When you come on Sunday, when I come on Sunday, when I come to God's Word during the week, my first thought shouldn't be, oh man, I hope Phil hears this. Phil really needs this today. Phil is one of our elders down here. So so we're still friends. I can say that safely. What should my first thought be? Oh man, Ron sure needs this. I'm Pastor Ron. I need this. How is this going to step on my toes? What is the Holy Spirit trying to do in my heart? When we come to God's Word and worship, it's, it, we've got to resist thinking we know best for everyone else and start letting God change us. The last thing in, in worship, I think we need to expect ridicule. True worship is not easy. It, it will result in ridicule, especially in this world. You know, I mentioned our college students on the front lines and in politics, we saw examples of that this week, that someone that just held to a standard Christian belief that you need Jesus to be saved was ridiculed as a hateful person, a despicable person, and said he wasn't fit for public office. This is the world that we live in right now, that we have to stand together and say we will hold to truth. And the reason is, is because we worship the creator of the universe. There's got to be an anchor for us to hold to truth. 
So what does God despise? Empty worship and surface religion. And so we stand against that. Third point in your notes. And this is where God, I, I think he's, he's answering those that have been ridiculed, those that have been through so much. And he's saying, rejoice, our hope is in God. Rejoice, our hope is in God. He will make Jerusalem new for his true worshipers. And we've seen this theme throughout Isaiah where he, he gives us two choices, true worship, false worship. This is where that leads. This is where this leads. And he's doing this again. And so he starts to describe the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth because he's reminding them, yes, you might be ridiculed here. It might be difficult here to worship, but this is not the end. Praise God, this is not the end. In verse 7, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. And, and the first question of seven, we should ask, well, who's she? Who, who's it talking about? And as we go on, especially in 12 and 13 and 14, we see that he's talking about Zion and he's talking about the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth. And he uses imagery that is just real, real down to earth, right? He, he's using childbirth. And he says, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. And, and the idea there is, is a very quick and painless delivery. You know, so, so before even the first labor pain strike, the baby's born. Now, we've had a lot of babies at Village in the last two years. And I, I, see, I see dad's holding them right now, and, and the nursery's full. Moms, is, would that be great? <laughs> that would be great. And, and he's using that as a, just a down-to-earth image of how quickly God will change things here on earth. How quickly a new Jerusalem will come. And the, the sin and the, 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 the stink of, of this earth and, and what sin has done to it will be gone and the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem will be there. Saying it'll be quick. In a moment. In a twinkling of an eye. The Jerusalem that was destroyed will be made new and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And we look forward to this. This should bring us joy. And so we've worshipped a lot through Isaiah about looking forward to heaven and the new heavens and earth because God says rejoice in this. This is what gives you hope. In verse 9, Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who causes to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? And he's using the same imagery to say this will happen. I, I won't make you be pregnant for nine months and almost give birth and then poof, you're not pregnant and no baby. I, it, it, it makes no sense, right? It's sort of a silly illustration. He's saying, no, I've promised this will happen. My plan, and if you remember our timeline, from creation and the fall to the cross to the new heavens and new earth, my plan has always been, always will be, and nothing will change it. Rejoice. It's going to happen and it's going to happen quickly. And that's worth, that's worth worshiping about. He's, he's sharing why true worship is so important and so valuable. He goes on to say, rejoice with Jerusalem. And this is where, where he, he really says who the she is. Rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. And then he, he talks about the people who are seeing her destroyed. All you who mourn over her. 
And and he's saying, you can rejoice too because God's going to make all things new. The effects of sin for people that worship God will be completely undone. It's going to be true in the New Jerusalem. It's going to be true in your life and my life. As we follow God, we can look forward to a day where there won't be any sin, where there won't be any pain, where, where God completely undoes everything that Satan has done to this world through sin. It's going to be awesome. And so he says, rejoice, be glad. And then 11, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. And, and we know from, from Revelation that the new Jerusalem is going to be the central fixture of the new heaven and the new earth. And God himself is going to dwell there with man. And he's going to rule from there. And out of that will go blessings and comfort to the entire new heaven and new earth. Without sin, a people completely following God. It's okay to use the word paradise for that. It's going to be amazing. Verse 12 goes on to say, For thus says Yahweh, or thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. Again, she she wasn't experiencing peace. Every nation would come through Israel on its way somewhere else and destroy the little guy as they went to destroy the big guys. It was the, the central route that made them the target for every nation. Today, is there peace in Jerusalem? Every day on the news we see reports there there can't be peace because it goes all the way back to abraham and ishmael and and the battles that have been through all of scripture and there won't be peace until god takes care of sin once and for all then there will be peace in jerusalem so he says behold i will extend peace or shalom to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream And you shall nurse and shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees, referring to the blessings that she will give to all nations because Christ is ruling there. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall show his indignation against his enemies. And we see this wonderful description of life with God. And in verse 14, that sin will be taken care of. He will be vindicated against his enemies. We will flourish. Our hearts will rejoice. One of my favorite phrases is that the hand of the Lord will be known to his servants. And so we won't see dimly anymore. We will know God. We will know what he's doing for those that follow him. hard not to get excited about that this is not all there is we look forward to rejoicing to flourishing to communion with god do not lose heart here catch that do not lose heart here this is just chapter one of a whole book that ends a lot better than this Reminder two, what are we hoping for? What what are we hoping for to get by this week, this month, this year? Our hope needs to be in God and what He's doing and in the future. I just want to read a a passage, a, a corresponding passage out of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I really think John, as he's writing this, has a a scroll of Isaiah nearby. And he's expanding through the Holy Spirit on some of these things we're, we're reading in Isaiah. Village, rejoice. Rejoice beyond anything you're going through here. Rejoice because God is taking care of it and is bringing us into communion with Him. A new heaven, a new earth. That is motivation to worship. What else can we do but worship? We get to the last section of the chapter and point number four is in the end, true worship wins and false worship is judged in finality. In the end, true worship wins and false worship is judged in finality. The last whistle will have blown. The last inning will have been played. The game will be done. And and God wins. And those that oppose Him will be judged. We saw in Isaiah 1, the the beginning of the book, and Isaiah is really bookending this, but in Isaiah 1 is Jerusalem and those that don't follow God will be judged, but Zion will be redeemed, and those that seek God will have an eternity with Him. And in Isaiah 66, he's coming to that same you can break this section into to three little subsections. The first is verses 15 through 17. False worship will come to an end. False worship will come to an end because it's empty. Just coming and going through the motions is empty. It doesn't do anything. So we, we see in verse 15, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger in fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. And we see images here that, that were like chariots and whirlwind and fire. And this would make a great movie and, you know, whatever it is. But, but think about this. Fire is often used of God's righteous holiness in Scripture. Often a judging holiness. Because His righteousness cannot endure the presence of sin and without dealing with it. And so you see a fire that represents God's holy judgment against sin. Remember, God appeared to Moses in fire. In Isaiah 6, around the throne, the, the seraphim literally meant the fiery ones. We, we see that uh, the rushing wind and the tongues of fire on the day of Pentecost. And so this is an image of God's holy presence that is taking care of sin. The whirlwind consumes all and leaves nothing behind. And in case we have any more wanting to move to Texas, they have a lot of these. You can lose your house and your property. Don't go. Um, For those listening in Texas, we love you. We miss you. Um, But this whirlwind has to do with that it does consume everything. And God consumes it. His holiness consumes everything. It leaves nothing behind. We see that, that God answered Job out of the whirlwind in Job 38 and in Job 40, showing his power. This consuming power. 
And so you get this picture of this righteous, holy, creator God that has said, I've given you every chance to turn to me and now it's done and sin will be taken care of. End of story. We have to know that that's the end. And if there's anyone here today that's on the fence of, do I follow God? Do I, do I not follow God? Do I follow self and what I want? Know the end. Read the last chapter. Because the end, for those that follow God, is amazing. And for those that don't, is judgment. We read on. For by fire the Lord will enter into judgment. And by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. And this isn't his heart. His heart has been come to me. But he must judge sin. And he, he, comes to, he brings it back to the worship issue in 17. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens. And, and again, we're like, oh, a garden's pretty nice. But remember a couple of weeks ago, gardens represented fertility rituals. And, and that's where a lot of altars were set up. And he's saying, so, so you, you say you follow me, but then you go after these other fertility rituals and, and offer yourself to other gods. And and yeah, it may not be idols. It may be the God of money or career or relationships. You offer yourselves to these things because you don't believe I'm enough. And you want more than I have given you. And it is sin. It says following one in the midst. You're willing to follow anyone. The most charismatic leader around. The idol that's close by that everyone's into. Eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice all these things, he says, shall come to an end together, declares Yahweh. God will only tolerate false worship for so long. In the end, it will be completely taken care of. But I, I, would, I would say God will only tolerate false worship in our lives for so long before the disciplining hand of God will come on. False worship is an affront to God. It is saying you are not God. You are not worthy of all my worship. I must go outside of you to get what I want. It's offensive. And we must think of that as we live our lives. God is is judging false worship and he says it will come to an end. Not because he's some egocentric God, but because everything else falls short. Everything else falls short of what he wants to give us, how he wants us to be in relationship with him, how he wants us to flourish. And so those first three verses about the end, false worship will come to an end. But then the next section, 18 through 23, true worship will thrive in people from all nations. True worship will thrive in people from all nations. Listen to these verses or read with me in in verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. They shall come and shall see my glory. And so he's ending this whole thought with a worshiping people coming to the house of the Lord. The work of vengeance is done. And now believers are being gathered from the corners of the, new, uh, of, of, of the earth for the new heaven and new earth. 19, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pool, to Lud, who, those who draw the, bowl to, the bow, to Tubal, to Javan, to the coastlands far away. 
They have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And he's using these far-off lands all around to say that people from everywhere are going to come and worship God. And so he's painting a contrast again. Just just a, a fun thing in 19, and I will set a sign among the nations. There, there's a, among them, there's a lot of questions. What is that sign? I think the most compelling thing is he's referring to Christ there. Is that he's saying, I am going to set Christ as a sign of the truth to worship there. And they will worship. Verse 20, and they shall bring all your brothers from all nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. Do you get the picture there? He's saying they're going to find any means to get here and worship. This is how serious they're going to be about worship. If they have to take a camel, they'll take a camel. If they have to walk, they'll walk. If they have to take a horse, they'll take a horse. You know, for us, think of all our modes of transportation, and it's, I will go worship God. This is taking worship seriously. I, I don't know if you guys watch TV, but there's this one commercial that I laugh at every time for Ally Bank. And I'm not saying go to Ally Bank. I, I don't. I don't know anything about them. Just like their commercial. And, and at the beginning um, of this commercial, one of the, the managers says, we're going to do what's right for the customer. Who's in? Have you guys seen this commercial? Anyone? No? Okay. So in this little meeting room with three or four people, who's in? He puts his hand in the middle like a little team thing, and the other guys put their hand in. And all of a sudden, the rest of the commercial is people from Ally Bank coming from all over the city to be in on doing what's right for the customer. And people are breaking through windows and walking on cars and swimming through ponds. And, and they all get there. And there's hundreds of people that have their hands in. And, and yeah, it's for them trying to say they're about customer service. But what if that was our approach to who's in for true worship of God? And we're not going to let anything stop us. We're going to break through whatever barriers are there. And I'm going to be there Sunday morning and whenever I can to worship with God's people. When we truly understand who God is and how great is our God, that will be our approach to worship. We, we, we won't be able to help it. And so he, he's, he, he's really asking, he, he's painting a picture of a people that are so anxious to worship that nothing will stop them. Is that us? Is that, I hope so. I hope so. And in reality, it probably is some Sundays and not some other Sundays. Depending on which child is screaming and how much sleep we've got, right? Life happens. But this is the picture of the goal. And they will bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. They will be purified and ready to worship. It's fun. We're we're taking a group to, to Israel. We leave next week, actually, next Sunday. And a few of you are going. One of the things we're going to see around places of worship, but especially the temple, is they have all these these mikvahs or or bathing pools that people would go into to to symbolically purify themselves before they go up to worship. And, and they're all around the bottom of the steps. And those that are going, you're going to see this. And and I want you when you see it, I want you to think preparing for worship, because they made sure they were clean coming into worship. Because they knew they were coming before a holy God. 
21, and some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord, which is saying the Gentiles will be fully integrated in. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says Yahweh, so shall your offspring and your name remain. And we come back to worship in 23. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, so month to month, week to week, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. What is God looking for? True worship. And in the end, that's what will be left. True, ongoing, continual worship. A people willing to bow down and coming under the authority of God. The goal is worship. The goal of everything is bringing glory to God, right? From, from the catechism, Westminster Catechism, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is the greatest goal. And so don't come away from Isaiah thinking of a judging God or, or all kinds of other things. We can Come away thinking of a God who righteously will judge sin, but who anxiously draws people to Himself and saves them because of His love, because of His glory, because of His mercy. And we see all of the attributes together. Karen Maines wrote about worship in a hymn book that that she had written. And I love what she writes about worship. Worship has been defined as being preoccupied with God. How do we learn to become preoccupied with God? By cultivating intentionality. By deliberately turning our minds toward divine preoccupation. By developing worship habits and working on them. Intentional worship means a worshiper is not going to church expecting that worship will just happen. But intentionality means that a worshiper is going to church determined to make worship happen. I love that. Coming with intentionality on Sunday morning. Determined to make worship happen. The bottom of your notes, I put some ideas for how to do this. And and how, how do we practically put this into practice? How are we intentional about worship? And I just put 10 ideas, you know, just in case you didn't have enough. Um, what does it look like in real life to get ready for Sunday morning or Sunday evening if you worship on Sunday evening? But, and, and I just want to read through these. They're at the bottom of your notes there. Um, the first thing is to get enough sleep. Get enough sleep. Preparation for Sunday starts Saturday night. Some of you didn't get enough sleep. And you are now. No, just <laughs> Glad to help. (laughs) But if we really want to interact with God's word and the song, we've got to get enough sleep. I am not my best when I don't have enough sleep. Right? Some of you aren't your best when you don't get enough sleep. We're in this together. Two, read the text during the week. Read the text during the week. The vast majority of our sermons follow a book of the Bible. You know where we're at the next week, right? Uh, and every now and then we have, so like next week we'll be looking at the second half of Romans 12, a little bit different. But, and, and then in, in July we're going to jump into Luke. You can read Luke ahead. Uh, the numbers go in chronological order. I mean, it's, it's in numeric order, sorry. Um, in numeric order, it's, it's great. And that's a great way to prepare yourself for Sunday morning. Um, three, get your things together the night before. 
Try to reduce how much you're rushing around Sunday morning so your morning can be focusing on who God is. Unless you do what I did today and got my things together and left them at home. (laughs) So I'm texting my wife and she brought them. (laughs) Number four, use the morning to make sure your heart is right. Confess and make sure you're right with God before you step in those doors. Now, if there's stuff and there's still junk in your life and we're dealing with it in the morning, that's great. That's what we're here as a family for. But as much as possible, try to to, to confess on your way here maybe. Use that car time and make sure we're clean and ready, just like we saw in Isaiah. Number five, in the morning, something that, that is helpful is to start thinking about one of God's attributes or all of God's attributes. Start to focus our eyes on God, turning our eyes on Him. And then we're ready on Sunday morning. Number seven, and, and these, aren't, these are not absolutes. These aren't scripture. These are just ideas. Um, number six, sorry. Leave early enough on Sunday to not be rushed. Service starts at 9.30. <laughs> I know, that's a surprise for some. Others of you are here early. It's great. Uh, something that I've always found is getting here early helps me be ready to worship. It also helps me encourage members of the family of God and be part of family. The cup of coffee doesn't, doesn't hurt either. Come, come so where you're not rushed. Some of you are probably like me. When I drive and I'm rushed, bad things. Bad things. That my, my kids call it NASCAR dad. <laughs> and they say, don't let NASCAR dad come out because I get rushed it is not conducive to worship. Enough said. Number seven, this is just an idea that we do in our family. Limit your music on Sunday morning to worship music. Um, we, we listen to a lot of Christian music, but we even limit that down to, to specifically worship music on Sunday morning. Um, I, one of our practices, we actually listen through the songs. I have the advantage of I know what songs we're doing. So we listen through the songs that we're going to be doing that morning. And it just really helps prepare us for worship. Number eight, pray for the service and all in ministry. Pray that God would use the time here in you and through you. So if you come and you're coming and you're praying, Lord God, help those nursery workers. Help Pastor Ron. Help Joshua as he leads worship. And we're praying through ministry here. God is doing something in our hearts. And and he's changing us and preparing us for worship. This is why the elders, we get together every Sunday morning um, and pray for the service. Just to ask God to work, to show our dependence on Him. Number nine, be ready to receive and respond. What I mean by that is come looking for God to impact you from the music in His Word and be ready to respond to that. You can go to virtually any message, no matter how boring it is, And get something out of it if you're trying. If we're looking to be impacted. Especially since our commitment is we will be in God's word every week. God's word is powerful. So come looking to be changed. And finally, number 10, come ready to serve. To encourage others. Come looking to serve rather than spectate and consume. You've heard me encourage you to ask the question on your way here, who does God want me to serve today? And what I mean by that is, who does he want me to talk to today? Encourage, 
Give a, a word of encouragement. Pray with. A handshake. Or dare I say a hug for those that hug. But come ready to serve. Just ten ideas that will change how we worship. Just radically change it. Look at verse 24. And we'll end with this and move into communion. Verse 24 is and what I titled the last phrase in your notes is, So choose. You can, you can follow God. You can follow self. You, you, can, you can pursue Him. You can pursue your own ways. But you have to choose one or the other. And in 24, this is the last verse of Isaiah, and it is the most bizarre way to end Isaiah, but the perfect way to force a decision. In 23 and 24, he gives the two sides of the decision. From new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares Yahweh. And then in verse 24, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all the flesh. That's how Isaiah ends. And what he's doing here is he's painting the two sides and painting the pictures. If you don't follow God, this is the result. The result is, is the fire of hell that will not be quenched, a worm that will not die, referring to that judgment. All kinds of, of questions of what that could be referring to in the, in the valleys around Jerusalem. But the point is, those that don't follow God will be judged for all eternity. And that's the end. Worship or don't. Follow God or don't. But God will deal with darkness. Hope will crush darkness. And so which side are we on?